What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. If you're not already a subscriber to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, two words that strike hope, fear, and maybe, let's hope at least, curiosity and a fair amount of uncertainty in people's minds. Those words, artificial intelligence. Is the future of AI and its potential science fact or science fiction? From deep fakes to advances in medical technology to the rise of, perhaps some say, planet-killing robots, AI offers extraordinary promise, and to some, including some of its most innovative creators, it offers a threat. But do the concerns outweigh the benefits? Well, last month I had the opportunity to speak with one of the world's leading AI entrepreneurs to explore all these questions, the opportunities and challenges that this rapidly evolving and advancing technology presents. Alexander Wang is co-founder of Scale AI, the son of two physicists, Wang started his billion-dollar company five years after dropping out of MIT. The company's been a powerful force in the development of artificial intelligence in the fields of economics, finance, and the military. And even though he's still not even 30 years old, Wang has become one of the most prominent voices in debates over the proper application of AI. And Alexander Wang joins me now. Alexander, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you. Why don't you start telling us, because everybody is fascinated by artificial intelligence. It is probably the thing that I think is on so many people's minds in terms of how it's going to transform our lives, it's going to how to transform work, the threats, the fears, the opportunities that it all represents. Let's start with you and your company in particular, Alex, because you've been one of the most successful and young entrepreneurs in the field. Tell us about Scale AI, what you do, how it got started, and what your business involves. Yeah, so at Scale, we power the data testing and evaluation for the entire AI industry. We started doing this back in 2016 when I started the company, and we've continued to sort of quietly power this entire wave of artificial intelligence from behind the scenes. You started in 2016. I think you dropped out of, was it MIT? Yes, yeah. dropped out of MIT. You didn't see any future in higher education. That was already a very astute judgment at that point. Fast forward today, we quietly power many of the leaders in the field, OpenAI, Meta, Microsoft, uh, and many others. You know, my own history in this, I was studying AI and machine learning at MIT, and it became very clear that data was the lifeblood of these AI systems, that fundamentally, you know, there were sort of three main ingredients to these AI systems. There was computational power, there was data, and then there was the algorithmic improvements. And while I, at the time, I felt confident that we would make improvements on computational power and algorithmic improvements, the data was a glaring gap in terms of infrastructure capability and serious companies focus on the problem. Right. So in the past seven years since starting the company, we, Scale AI, have been a part of every major advancement in AI from that time. We got our start working with many of the largest autonomous vehicle efforts, working with large auto manufacturers like General Motors and Toyota and many others. And again, that was focusing on this sort of on this three-legged stool that was focusing particularly on data, as you said. Tell us again, what was the opportunity and how you've exploited that opportunity essentially at scale? Yeah, so just in the same way that all of these AI 
companies and these AI efforts are hugely reliant on NVIDIA GPUs to be able to provide the very high-end computational resources that are required to build these models. They're also highly reliant on very high-end data requirements. They need extremely high-quality, detailed, complex data to fuel the sort of learning and capability of these AI systems. And that's what we provide. So Scale's data engine is sort of the sister, so to speak, to NVIDIA's GPUs in helping to power as, you know, at this point, basically the entire generative AI ecosystem. Now, you use the term there. Again, one of the things I need to do, especially for, most of all for me, who's probably the most ignorant person listening to this conversation and fascinated by it, but don't know the details, use the term generative. AI. Can you explain what that is? And, and also, you talked about large language models. People use that phrase, LLM. And then and we'll get on to some wider AI conversation, but there is also artificial general intelligence, which people talk about, which is a whole other thing. Again, in a very simple terms, comprehensible terms, explain what these terms mean. So generative AI is the broader trend that's happening right now, where AI systems are now able to generate content. Previously, a lot of the focus on artificial intelligence, mostly on cognition or perception, so AI systems that were able to identify things in imagery or right. identify certain patterns. Like face recognition. Yeah, sort of thing. yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Autonomous vehicles, etc. But now AI systems are able to generate things that previously would require human capability. So these include images and visuals, which I think have taken the world by storm, as well as language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so write very compellingly, answer questions very compellingly, perform tasks very compellingly. We've seen that most obviously with ChatGPT and Google's Bard and things like that, where people are more and more familiar with these platforms. Now. Exactly. And in ChatGPT and Bard, you're interacting primarily with what's called a large language model, which are these AI models that are particularly capable of producing long-form text. And then AGI is this future milestone or future hypothetical milestone that has been prophesied for decades and decades, actually, in the field of AI and has gone through many booms and busts. But it's sort of this future state where we imagine AI systems that are as intelligent or as capable as humans are. And, you know, one definition of this that I think is often adopted is that you'll have AI systems that are able to do 80%, 90% of the economically valuable tasks that humans do. And I think that the reality, I think, as we get closer and closer to more capable AI systems is that in some ways, they'll vastly exceed human performance. ChatGPT never makes a grammatical mistake, whereas any writer usually at some point will make a gaffe, but is meaningfully deficient in other areas. So there's some ways in which these models will be superhuman, some ways in which they'll be meaningfully deficient. And that sort of balance is is one of the things that we contend with in the field. Where do you stand? Because there's a range of views. We're leaping ahead a bit here when we talk about AGI, artificial general intelligence. Where do you stand, Alex, on the spectrum of it's going to transform our lives for the good, it's going to make extraordinary advances in medicine and science and technologies. Yeah, it might put a lot of people out of work, but it's going to actually generate different types of work, all that kind of stuff. Two, on the other end of the spectrum, very reasonable wise people, famous people like Jeffrey Hinton, the former Google AI sort of guru, saying, actually, it's frightening. It's terrifying. We are creating, we are on the path, science fiction stuff, no longer science fiction, going to be science future, science fact. We are on the path to creating machines that ultimately are going to destroy us and destroy the planet and destroy the world. And we've got to do something about it. Where do you stand broadly on that kind of spectrum from hope to terror? Yeah, I think you can color me much more in the hopeful camp. You know, I think it's important to take a historical view here. So if you think about the history of technology, it often is the case that with major technological advancements, there's always 
this very wide span of reactions to it. And you could look back to the Industrial Revolution when we had the steam engine. And on the one hand, there were folks who were saying that we had these monstrous machines and, you know, what were the soul of the machines and, you know, how are they going to enslave us? And on the other end, obviously, you had the more hopeful camp that these were great for humanity. And I think fast forward today, you know, I think it's kind of, you know, we don't think about engines or locomotion or any of these sort of any of this machinery as stuff that is remotely human. So I think there's some truth to that that will happen now, which is, you know, there's a range of viewpoints all the way ranging from, you know, these are machines that will enslave humans all the way to this is going to be an engine for great economic prosperity. I land much more on the latter camp of economic prosperity. That being said, I think there's real risks with the technology that we need to take seriously and we need to be quite thoughtful about them. question I always have, it seems to me, it's almost a question for neurology rather than technology. But in a sense, a large part of the question is, is, you know, what is the human brain, right? Is the human brain the, so far, the most astonishing computational device that's ever been created? And one day, like all machines, all devices is going to be superseded by new technology. Or is there something just intrinsically and fundamentally different about the human brain that we'll never be able to replicate with endless amounts of computational capability, data, algorithmic capability. What's your sense of, you know, because again, there is this view that I remember interviewing years ago, Ray Kurzweil, who talked about the singularity, that there is this point in the development of information technology where we create something that is smarter than the human brain. And that that's the point at which obviously, you know, that's the end times. Again, what's your understanding of that? What's your understanding of what fundamentally this technology is really in its most extreme form is really capable of in comparison with human capability? Yeah, you know, I think this is a a deeply philosophical question and one that's at the heart, I think, of the overall industry. I mean, certainly the models that we've produced are vastly less efficient than the human brain. I think the human brain, as we know, can learn off of, you know, a few examples, is very, very power efficient. If you get all the way into the technical specifics, it's a much more optimized architecture, so to speak, where memory and computational power are more interlinked. And it's a very, very extremely well-designed machine or mechanism. Now, I think certainly hypothetically, at some point, you could imagine there's some improvement to be made from the human brain, just in the way that if humans continue evolving, you know, there are future life forms that will be more capable, smarter, et cetera, than the human brain. So certainly the human brain is by no means an apex or a sort of like an end state of intelligence. And I think that that's where part of the question comes in. And I think when we look at these AI systems, it's the fact that they're superhuman in some areas that I think is what creates a lot of fear because it's quite surprising that we can build these AI systems to be so good at writing or so good at thinking, you know, at Go, for example, when we had DeepMind's AlphaGo a number of years ago. And so I think that's part of the cognitive challenge. And so I think, you know, I think we are on a very exceptional technological path. The models are going to continue improving for many years, and they're going to continue becoming more and more capable. And I think we're not likely to see a plateau in the technology anytime soon. Now, it's a totally separate question around how, when the technology ultimately does plateau, how that compares to the human brain. I think truthfully, nobody in the industry really knows. So moving off the the existential question to the more practical question in the field of economics in particular, you touched on this where you talked about machines that could replace maybe 80% of tasks that are currently done that we currently think of as human labor. Again, I've had so many interesting conversations the last year with people who think that with every wave of technology is greeted by both optimism, but also fear about what it means in terms of surplus labor, essentially. There's so many tasks will be able to be done. And, you know, we're used to thinking of menial tasks or manual tasks that can easily be performed now by robots or machines. But we're talking now about intellectual tasks, things that doctors do. I had a conversation with someone not so long ago who said that 
even in its current form, ChatGPT could probably teach undergraduate economics better than three quarters of professors at most universities in the United States or the UK or elsewhere. So it's obvious that we're making you know huge strides there, and you can see it all the time. Is there any reason to believe this wave of technological innovation? People have been crying wolf so long about technological innovation making human labor essentially surplus to requirements. Is there any reason to think that we will not adapt to this technological innovation in the way that we have time and time and time again. And let's not forget, the unemployment rate in the United States right now is below 4%. Labor participation is a bit lower than that. But we've already had this waves and waves of innovation, and apparently there still is massive demand for labor out there. So is there any reason to think that unlike all of those previous waves of innovation, while there'll be disruption, that this may actually go further than disruption and fundamentally change the nature of demand for labor and for the activities that human labor can do? I mean, this is a central question. Again, I think it comes back to what I mentioned before, which is I think the models will be superhuman in some areas, but will be deficient in other areas. So as long as that's true, there will always be a meaningful role for humans to play in the future economy. I think the challenge with this particular technology, with AI, is the speed and pace of both technological innovation as well as deployment. I think you see this with these graphs of, um, uh, you know, tech products and how quickly they get to 100 million users. Yeah. And you can see over time the steepness of that curve. It just keeps getting steeper and steeper and steeper. Yeah, like so ChatGPT did it in what? I can't remember, a matter of months, right? Yeah. Whereas even Facebook was a year or two, te- five years, something like that. But exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was, oh, we're on this sort of exponential curve of adoption. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I think at the base level, at a core innovation perspective, there's a huge amount of innovation in AI. There's innovation at the chip level that NVIDIA is driving along with other semi, uh, semiconductor companies. There's innovation at the data level that we and others are driving to push forward um, these underlying components. There's certainly innovation at the algorithmic level. And so you add all those together and we're on this very steep technological progress curve. And then, you know, usually when you have a steep technological progress curve, like we did with solar, for example, then it takes still a long time for it to get deployed. But in this case, it gets deployed immediately. You know, you have a new model, it'll be deployed, tons of people will use it. And so the potential speed of real world-changing impact, let's say economic impacts or geopolitical impacts or whatnot, all the speed of these changes is faster than I think anything we've seen before, potentially save COVID. And what that means is it's going to be a real question in terms of how do the institutions of the world, how do the largest companies in the world, how do governments respond to this very, very fast-moving technology? But just to clarify, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but you tell me. So you're of the view, I think, that, that AI, as far as we can foresee right now, and of course that, that itself raises questions, but as far as we can see right now, is just as people feared that the first industrial revolution would result in permanent, permanent undeployed labor, permanent unemployed people, that that fear that people have now about AI, which, by the way, that did not prove to be founded, you think the same about AI. You don't think we're facing a world in which half the population, maybe more than half the population of working age is not really going to have anything meaningful to do. Yeah, that's not my view. My view is that, yeah, we will find economically productive jobs in any new economy with this technology. And I think as with all prior innovations, we will see huge amounts of economic surplus, huge amount of global increase in quality of life as a result. We're going to take a break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with Alex Wong, the founder and CEO of Scale AI, one of the most interesting and innovative AI companies. And we're talking, of course, about the possibility and perhaps even some of the threats from artificial intelligence. Stay with us. In just 48 hours, TopTel can provide the world-class AI and tech experts you need to optimize your business and stay competitive in 2024 and beyond. To get started, visit TopTel.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. 
You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Alex Wong, the founder and CEO of Scale AI, uh, one of the most interesting and innovative AI companies. And we're talking about artificial intelligence. All right, let's move on to the sort of policy and regulatory framework, which has got a lot of attention in the last year. British government, Rishi Sunak, just held a big, I think he was there. You yeah, were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bletchley Park. Bletchley Park, that's right. A very historically symbolic place to hold it because its role in the Second World War in particular. There's a lot of interest in regulation here. And because of some of the things we've talked about, particularly the more extreme fears that robots or whatever machines can wipe us all out, that we need to bring, just as we do with certain types of medical technology, there's an ethical dimension to all this. And we introduce regulation in to limit the potential exploitation in the medical field, in the biotechnology field. Some people have compared it also to what they see as the scale of the threat from AI to the kind of global regulatory framework we try to put in place with things like nuclear arms treaties and deals where countries agree to restrain themselves from doing certain things. People want a regulatory framework for AI. There's a lot of interest in that national and international, supranational regulatory framework that would place limits, presumably force more transparency in companies uh, in terms of exposing what they're doing and where their research might lead. Give us your sense of that. Is that is that something that is desirable and indeed feasible? Yeah, this is a really important topic and one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I think the past year, if you look at 2023, huge amount of focus on the topic of AI safety. So many, many luminaries in the field, uh, as well as many of the companies sort of came forth, as well as many politicians like Prime Minister Sunak, as well as the US government came forward with basically policies to prevent the catastrophic risks associated with technology such as AI. My personal viewpoint is I think rather than AI safety, which I think is a useful topic, but sometimes gets a bit overloaded, I think the topic to really focus on is what I call AI deterrence. And what I mean by that is how do we build a framework that deters bad actors from utilizing AI to inflict harm, cause chaos, harm the world? How do we build a framework that deters them rather than thinking about a sort of more aggressive regulatory regime that might stifle progress as well. And this comes from my core belief, which is I think the AI technology is very powerful. I think the greatest, greatest risk of it is that bad actors use the technology and it accelerates the ability for bad actors to inflict harm. And that's both state and non-state actors you're talking about? Both state and non-state actors. So how do you, what's the practical answer? How do you deter them? Yeah, you know, I think the key, if we think about the past 80 years of history, Pax Americana and sort of relative peace, a huge amount of deterrence has come from a combination of American military strength, as well as some American policies, which have been really critical in ensuring a period of relative peace compared to you know, the history of the world, which is generally punctuated by war. You know, I think there's a few key factors. One is I think we need to invest a lot into the testing, evaluation, and detection of AI systems. We need to be able to understand and know what are the AI systems that various state and non-state actors are running out there and what are the capabilities associated with those. So how do we do that? Does that require self-declaration, which I'd have thought by definition, bad actors are just not going to do? Or is there some way of essentially of surveilling them and understanding what they do? I mean, how do we know what people are doing? It's a big topic of research in the AI field. How do you detect when these models are being used in various forms throughout the world? But given how interconnected the internet is these days and how frankly impossible it is to carry out activities that, you know, it's nearly impossible to carry out influential activities that will go fully undetected in the broader internet you know, surveillance capabilities, I think we can detect it. Then it comes to, I think there's two other key pillars. One is 
the leadership of the West. And the second is what I'll call sort of an escalation ladder or an escalation framework. In terms of the leadership of the West, this is critical. You know, if we believe in the Western way of life, the Western philosophies, then we need to believe that the West can lead in this technology, particularly when it comes to military deterrent. So a lot of the technology has come to bear through commercial advancements, you know, private sector advancements and private sector research in the West, particularly in the UK and the US, DeepMind in the UK and OpenAI uh, and other companies in the United States. You know, my view is that we need to translate that into a real deterrent military advantage to deter bad actors from using these AI systems for the sorts of risks that people often talk about, bioweaponry, misinformation, and election influence, using them as cyber weapons. You know, there's a lot of capabilities that people are quite concerned about the models, but these need to be paired with a strong American or broadly Western defense capability. And this is against the backdrop, you know, it's worth mentioning over the past year, particularly as we look into over the course of 2024, China has made really meaningful strides. The Chinese AI ecosystem has put forth some of the most performant uh, open source models. So Yi34B, which is the open source model out of a company by Kai Fu Lee, 01.ai, is one of the leading open source models in the world. ByteDance has released some very impressive capabilities in video generation. TikTok, we see. Is the, yeah, exactly. What most of the consumers see. And so we're in this backdrop where the capabilities, you know, the global capability set, including from China and, and many other, other countries who have very different views from the Western way of life, are making huge advancements in the technology. We need American or Western leadership broadly. And then the last piece is, I think, diplomatically, we need to have an international framework for the acceptability of the use of AI in some of these avenues. So if a state or non-state actor were to use AI for bioweaponry, what kind of response does that trigger? And if we state that framework as an international framework ahead of time, and we make that a clear rules of the road engagement around the use of artificial intelligence, then I think we can meaningfully deter conflict, right? Just as an extreme case, if we deemed that the use of uh, AI for bioweaponry was an action that uh, could be met with nuclear force, for example, mm. I think that would be a meaningful, meaningful deterrent against the use of this technology for such nefarious purposes. So just as traditional military deterrence works, bless bluntly, through threats, right? if you do X, we will wipe you off the face of the planet or whatever, you think actually that kind of terminology, that kind of military approach could work in terms of deterring bad actors from doing really bad stuff with uh, artificial intelligence? That's what I would advocate for, exactly. Because my fundamental belief is a lot of this technology is dual use, but the development of technologies that can be used for nefarious purposes is one that I think we can prevent. Let's talk a little bit more about the geopolitics of AI, because you've been very focused on this. I think you actually appeared before Congress in 2023 talking about the um, competition, if you like, or the threat from China. Just give us a sense, if you would, first of all, because this is obviously so important in military terms, AI applications in military terms are just as they are in every other aspect of our lives, are incredibly important and going to be more so. Give us a sense, if you would, from what we know, if you wouldn't mind giving me some specific examples, because I'm trying to understand, and I think all listeners want to try and understand what exactly, you've talked a little bit about cyber warfare what is China doing? What are we all doing? But where is China's advantage in terms of some of these military applications of AI? Yeah, so I think some of the use cases are concerning. So I think one is in the form of cyber attacks. So ways to use AI in a way that may not be considered an actual conflict, but is something that would be meaningfully damaging. Can you give us an example? So they could use it to 
take out our electricity network or something. Is that? Yeah. So, so in a low-grade way, they could use it to hack all of our institutions on a consistent basis at any time they wanted. And at a more sort of aggressive standpoint, they could use it to disable any of our critical infrastructure at any given moment. And do they, A, do they have that capability right now? And B, do we have the capability either to deter, presumably through you know, <laughs> a symmetric threat, or somehow to protect ourselves against that threat. I mean, it's certainly true that other state actors are very advanced in cyber. The United States is also very advanced in cyber. So today, it is a little bit of a, there's real deterrence capability from our capabilities vis-a-vis our competitors' capabilities. AI is potentially a quantum leap ahead in cyber weaponry capabilities. So it could totally shift the balance of power. But in addition, I think we're transitioning towards a method of war that is fundamentally different. Let's say prior war, or let's say war up until a certain point, will be human-driven, involves a lot of very active combat, involves very, very expensive military systems. Um, We're moving towards a method of war, and I think we see glimpses of this in some of the active wars in the world today, like the Ukraine war, is towards a robotic, automated, and attritable warfare methodology in the sense that, you know, it'll be highly automated, mostly robotic, and most of the the actual war will occur through attritable, i.e. low expense drones of various forms that creates a sort of overwhelming military capability. This is a concept, you know, it's worth taking a note, the CCP and the PLA, which is their Department of Defense equivalent, have been very clear since 2018 now, for years and years, that they want to be a world leader in artificial intelligence, and they believe that AI, when applied to military capabilities, could allow them to leapfrog American defense capabilities. And this is against a backdrop of, you know, they've been doing a pretty good job of huge innovation in their defense capabilities. Hypersonic missiles have been a demonstration that obviously have been quite concerning. They've greatly advanced their space capabilities. China has a larger navy than the United States and has more shipbuilding capacity. So this is one of many potential threat vectors, but one that we need to be incredibly concerned about. What do we do? You've described in very stark terms there the threats. And by implication, it sounds like we aren't doing enough. What should the Pentagon, what should Congress be thinking about? How do we protect ourselves against this? We need to think about the next few years, truly the next few years, because there's a looming threat of a Taiwan action you know, whether that's an invasion or a blockade or or something along those lines. We need to think about the next few years as a critical, critical moment for massively innovating in our national security capabilities. And there's truly no time to waste. I think this is one of the most high temperature situations, let's say, that I think we could possibly imagine. And, you know, what Congress needs to do is start allocating dramatically more funding towards innovative efforts. You know, just to give a sense of scale, for the past many years, the PLA has invested 1% to 2% of their overall budget into artificial intelligence, which doesn't sound like a lot, but the DOD has invested 0.1% to 0.2% of their budget into artificial intelligence. So, We need to be investing at minimum 1% to 2% watermark into artificial intelligence programs. We need to cut through the bureaucracy of the DOD. We need to empower technology companies to drive innovation. And we need to have a real revitalization of American national security capabilities powered by artificial intelligence and other key technology breakthroughs in the commercial sector. Final quick question, Alex. We're in an election year in the United States, lots of elections actually around the world. India's got major elections. There's some big elections in Europe coming up. Everybody's very focused on this topic of misinformation and the way in which AI, we're all familiar with now with things like deep fakes and stuff like that. I 
tend to be a little skeptical when I keep hearing people talk about misinformation because one person's misinformation is another person's information. And after all, there are all kinds of misinformation way beyond the kind that, that most of these people, when they talk about it, are talking about. How concerned are you about it? How much of a risk is there that, again, either domestic, you know, people exploiting it domestically or bad actors overseas or foreign governments could somehow kind of infect the way in which we conduct our political debate here, whether it's through social media or through any of these other devices that rely on our technology in ways that could fundamentally distort debate and could lead to an outcome that somehow may not be rooted in actual truth, but in furtherance of somebody else's ideas. How big a concern is misinformation and is there anything we can do about it? It's a great question. I usually frame this under the more specific framing of election influence, right? What is the potential for foreign actors to influence our elections in the United States or, again, for any given election um, that's happening globally. You know, I think a ridiculous percentage of the Democratic population is going through an election year in 2024. You know, my view is I think AI is an exacerbation of the potential for foreign influence when the information channels by which society operated moved from, let's say, predominantly editorial channels to ones that are open and and prone to some forms of manipulation. Yeah. That was probably the first strike. And then now we have generative AI systems that can produce deep fakes, produce very compelling narratives, can be convincing sort of AI companions. You know, there's all sorts of capabilities of these AI systems that you can think about as an exacerbation potentially of the vectors for an influence in our elections. And so I think it's something we need to be incredibly conscious about. It was something I was less worried about last year, actually, but because of some of the great advancements we see in Chinese AI capabilities, which I think will translate into AI capabilities for many of our other unfriendly foreign actors, I think we're at much greater risk than I would have said a year ago. Are there verification techniques we can use somehow that AI can use or indeed any other technological devices we may be able to use that can, again, verification. So I've heard talk of things like watermarks on video to differentiate real video from a deep fake. Are there interesting, useful verification techniques that are available? There's a lot of very interesting research in this field and stuff that's being deployed, in particular by some of the hyperscalers. I think all of these things are measures, but none are bulletproof, right? And so we need to think about we're in an increased risk environment. Sorry to end on that slightly concerning note, but otherwise that's a really fascinating conversation and a very good account of uh, where your company is and where the whole AI field stands. Alex Wong, founder and CEO of Scale AI. Thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I'll be back next week with another conversation with someone on a topic of major interest to the world. Hope you'll join us. In the meantime, have a great week. 